I do want to uh, encourage you before you leave today, if you did not get a copy of the outline of today's message when the ushers were giving them out, that you would pick up one of those related to John 1 because at the close of that I've given you uh, some things that you can take home with you in leading up to Christmas, some passages that you can read and just some things that you can utilize in your devotion time. So please avail yourself of that opportunity. And also down on the front row and on the round tables uh, I have once again this year, as I did last year two years ago, given you a little paper on Mary. And the reason I've done that, because at Christmas time, we hear a lot about Mary, and there's a huge difference between the Protestant view of Mary and the Roman Catholic view of Mary. And sometimes I'm asked about the differences and why Catholics believe what they believe and we believe what we believe. Well, hopefully I've given you a little uh, information on that that can help you maybe as you witness and share your faith with others who, uh, who are Catholic in their beliefs. Uh, sometimes you'll see Joseph in manger scenes and he'll look like a grandpa. And Mary's young. And at other times, Joseph may look about the age of young Mary. Why those differences? Well, that'll explain some of that. So pick that up before you leave today as well. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? We're going to look at the topic, the Word made flesh. John writes, beginning there in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. One of the saddest verses in the Bible, I think, is verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Lord, this morning we pray that Your Holy Spirit might open up our hearts and minds that we would understand Your Word. 
Lord, I pray as the psalmist prayed that the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. And that you would be with me to communicate these precious truths to your people. God, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin. You sent your Son to be our Savior and also our Counselor and our Prince of Peace. Lord, help us to walk in the light that He brings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A Christmas card was once published, and you know how some of those old Christmas cards were? They were almost like little booklets that would tell a lengthy story. Well, there was one of those on one occasion that told the story, what if Christ had never come? The card told the story of a pastor on Christmas morning falling asleep in his study and dreaming of a world into which Jesus had never arrived. He looked through his home and there were no stockings hanging at the chimney, no Christmas bells, no Christmas decorations, no family get-togethers, and no Christmas smells. Likewise, there was no Christ to comfort or to save. He walked outside and there were no churches, no steeples pointing upward to heaven. He came back to his study and he looked for books about Jesus in his study and there were none. The doorbell rang and there stood a small child from his congregation. The child was crying because his mother was dying. The young messenger asked the preacher to please come quickly and visit his dying mother. He grabbed his Bible and rushed out the door. When he went inside the home, he said, I've got something to read to you that will comfort you. But he opened his Bible and was saddened by the fact that it ended with the book of Malachi. There was no John 3.16. No John 14. No Romans 8. Nothing about heaven. And he bowed his head and he wept. Folks, I want you to think with me a moment this morning about Christmas without Jesus Christ because that is precisely what a lot of people in the world would like. And that's sad. But instead, as believers, you and I have every single reason to celebrate our faith at this time of the year because Jesus Christ has come. God has sent a Savior into the world, the Savior, and He's the way, the truth, and the life, and that makes all the difference in the world. You know, when we think about the Christmas story, oftentimes our minds focus Upon the secondary elements. Mary and Joseph in the manger. We think of the wise men. We think of the angels singing. We think of the shepherds out in the field around Bethlehem that the angels appear to. We think of all of these secondary figures in the Christmas story. And I don't want to imply that they're not important. They are because God in His sovereignty saw fit to include all of those characters in the Christmas story. But John wants us to see those are not the primary characters. 
Jesus Christ is the primary character. And we need to remember that, that God tabernacled among us in the flesh. Let's not allow secondary characters to dim or cloud our vision of what's most important. Now, it's John's purpose throughout his gospel to show us that Jesus is not only fully human, but also fully divine. And that's why John, unlike Matthew or Luke, doesn't include genealogies as the gospel opens. Because a genealogy, if you think about it, only means something from a human standpoint of view. And again, John's purpose is to reveal to us the deity of Jesus Christ. John wants us to see that Jesus Christ is indeed God. He's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. Somebody has said about this passage in John 1 that never has so much been said in so few words. And as we go through this text, I want to ask you this morning, who is Jesus Christ? And do you believe in the Christ of the Bible? Makes all the difference in the world. As James Montgomery Boyce says, If Jesus Christ were only a man, then you can safely forget about him and just push him out of the picture. But if he is indeed the Son of God, as the Scripture says, that changes everything. Amen? First of all, I want you to see with me this morning that Jesus Christ was pre-incarnate. He says there in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The incarnation refers to Jesus coming in the flesh, and so pre-incarnate simply means that Jesus existed before he was born in the flesh. Folks, Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem in that manger. Jesus stepped out of eternity past. In fact, there was was never a time that he was not. He was pre-incarnate. And so John is going to write in such a way in these verses that he is going to capture the attention of both Jews and Greeks concerning the pre-incarnate nature of Jesus Christ. And first of all, related to Jesus being incarnate, he points out his timely, uh, timelessness. Look at verse 1 again. John says, In the beginning was the Word. That reminds us of how the Bible opens in Genesis 1-1 when it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But whereas Genesis 1-1 speaks of the beginning of the creation, John will point out that Jesus Christ is the beginning of God's new creation. John says, In the beginning was the Word. He does not say in the beginning began the word. The imperfect tense of the verb is what he uses here. And folks, that's important. It literally means in the beginning when time started and when creation started, the word already was. You see, Jesus was not just from the beginning, he was in the beginning. That means that even before there was a universe, there was a Christ. Before there was a sun to shine, there was Jesus. 
Again, never a time that he was not. Jesus is not simply a part of the created order. As we'll see in a moment as far as creation goes, Jesus is the one who made it all. And so in the beginning, when creation began, Christ was already there. And this pre-existent eternal Christ is described as the Word. In the Greek, it's logos. And so John is trying to relate here to both Jews and Greeks because they had an ongoing debate among themselves as they would debate about the word, the logos in the universe. Now to understand what the Greeks believed about this, you really have to go back to the 6th century B.C. to one of the Greek philosophers by the name of Heraclitus. He's the one who said that when it comes to a river moving water, it is impossible to step into the same river twice. In other words, all around us there is change. But Heraclitus and the other philosophers of the time asked if everything about us changes that radically, how is it that everything that exists is not in a state of perpetual chaos? Because it seems like it would be. And they answered that by affirming that what we have is not random change but ordered change. And for there to be ordered change there must be some divine principle out there. Some divine logos out there. Divine reason out there that is directing it all. But they spoke of that in very impersonal terms. That that logos was just a cosmic principle out there that holds everything together sort of like today in the movie Star Wars they say let the force be with you so the logos is just this force and John writes to say no 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 you've got it all wrong yes there's a logos there's a divine reason behind everything that keeps everything ordered and moving along but he's not some principle of reason he is a person his name is Jesus Christ and you can have a relationship with him After talking about his timelessness, he also mentions here his equality. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That preposition there, with, in the Greek text, literally means that the Word was a separate entity from God, and this separate entity was face-to-face with God. We might say, eyeball-to-eyeball. Now, folks, I want you to think about that for a moment. Someone being eyeball to eyeball, face to face with God. What John is communicating here is that the Logos, the Word, Jesus Christ, is on equal footing with God. 
All through the Bible, beginning with Genesis, we see the doctrine of the Trinity, which states that God is one, but in three distinct personalities. We're not talking about three gods, nor are we talking about one God who's only one, but reveals himself in three distinct ways over a period of time. In other words, sometimes he's just Father. At other times, he's Son. At other times, he's Spirit. That's not the doctrine of the Trinity. That was modalism, a heresy in ancient times. When we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about three distinct personalities in the Godhead. One God who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't take turns deciding who He's going to be today. Today I might be the Father, tomorrow I might be the Son, tomorrow I might be the Spirit. No, the Bible is pointing out that He is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this even in the very first book of the Bible. Genesis 1-1 tells us, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God there is Elohim. Plural, And yet the plural noun, the name for God, takes a singular verb. In Genesis 1-6, uh, Genesis 1-26 rather, when God declared that he was going to make man and woman in his image, he said, let us make man in our image. Who's the us? Who's the our? Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Folks, I want you to understand this morning, we don't worship three gods. We worship one God. As the Bible says, God is one. But that one God has manifested himself in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has always, from eternity past to the present to eternity future, he's exhibited himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The pre-incarnate Christ. And he mentions here also his identity in verse 1. Not only was he with God, but notice what he goes on to say, and the word was God. This is one of the plainest statements in the Bible about the deity of Jesus Christ. While the word is a separate entity from God and is with God, he is not less than God. He is God, God the Son. And that's why Jesus could say, I and my Father are one. Now sometime over the next year, I can just about guarantee you that everybody in this room is going to receive a knock at your door. And you receive a knock at the door and there's going to be a couple of people standing on your doorstep. Who are they going to be? Jehovah Witnesses. That's right. Jehovah Witnesses. And they'll try to tell you that John 1 is saying and the word was a God. A, little g, God. The word was a God. He was less than God. And they'll try to give you a little grammar lesson that the Greek here simply means that. And they'll point out that the definite article is missing. And therefore Jesus is a God instead of the God. 
Now, in reality, John knew his Greek quite well. A definite predicate nominative. In this case, the word theos, God, never takes the article when it precedes the verb was, as we find here. And then furthermore, by placing theos, God, first in the clause, John is giving it the emphatic position. His point is unmistakable. He is saying in no uncertain terms, Jesus is God. So grammatically, John actually used language in the correct way and in the very best way to communicate that Jesus is God not simply a lesser God. But if you can't convince them on a simple grammar lesson, and they try to insist that their New World Translation says it right, then I would suggest you reel them in a little bit. Play their little game. Okay? And then ask them why in their New, their new World Translation... They come to verse 6, they come to verse 12, they come to verse 13, they come to verse 18. And guess what? They don't keep that grammatical principle that they insist upon in verse 1. They translate God in those other verses the way it should be. God! And so they're inconsistent. But again, folks, John's point here is clear. Jesus is very God of very God, of the same essence and nature as the Father. He is a distinct personality from the Father, but of the same essence and nature. Folks, these things are important because I want to ask you a question this morning. Which Jesus died for you? If he was only a man or simply a God, then you're going to be faced with a great deal of difficulty when you go talking about Christ's redemption. If he is not the Christ of the Bible who died for you, then guess what? You are still in your sins. Folks, theology matters. It matters. Words matter. I'm not playing word games with you this morning. Words matter. We believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible. Plenary, full, verbal, every word. The full inspiration. Every word in the Bible. Every word in the Bible is God's word. And God has it there for a reason. Because it means something. And we can't go pulling out words and sticking something else in to guide our theology. The word itself has to guide our theology. So which Jesus this morning do you believe in? The, the Jesus of the Bible or some other Jesus? Important. Remember in Matthew 18, G, uh, Matthew 16 rather, Jesus carried his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And in that region, which uh, believed in polytheism, many gods, Jesus took his disciples to that region. And in that context, he said, whom do men say that I am? And Peter gave that confession, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. 
and on this rock I will build my church. Folks, it matters what Jesus you believe in. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Do you believe in the Jesus of Scripture? John is pointing out here the Jesus of the Bible and he's pointing out here that there is never a time that he has not been. He was not created. He's always been there with the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, this morning, I want you to see the fact that Jesus Christ is powerful. In verse 3, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John points out here that Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. He makes an important shift in verbs here between verse 1 and verse 3. Before, he used the verb amen which means to be and he put it in the tense that means that Jesus has always been but now in speaking of the created order he shifts verbs and he uses the word genomai meaning to become to come into being in other words while Christ has always existed creation has not And he points out here that Jesus is powerful. He's actually the agent of creation. We go back in our Bibles to Genesis 1 again when God said, let there be light and there was light. The Bible points out that Jesus Christ was there in the beginning and and he was the agent of creation. Paul says in writing to the Colossians in Colossians 1, for by him all things are created both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Christ made everything. Okay, preacher, we get that. But do you really, because I want to emphasize to you this morning, if he made everything, what does that mean? He made you. Every cell in your body, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And Jesus Christ is your rightful owner, just like he is the rightful owner of the universe. And that means today that people that reject Jesus Christ and live apart from Him, they are thieves and robbers in the worst sense of that word because they are taking their lives that Jesus made and Jesus deserves to be your Lord and Savior. And they are taking those lives and they're living those lives as though they are their own. And they don't understand that they were created by Him and they've been bought with the price. Jesus Christ is the agent of creation and He created you. He has a right to your life. He's sovereign Lord. And so when the Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, He deserves that worship of you and me right now. And if we're not giving it to Him, then we're nothing more than idolaters. He made it all. 
Not only did he made it, make it all, but the Bible says that it consists of him. He holds it all together. And so Christ created everything in this universe. He holds it all together. And folks, I want to assure you that he is moving it all along according to his plan. History's not out of control. Things are right on schedule. He's moving it along. You know, the more we learn of this universe, the more vast it becomes. And Jesus made it all, and he sustains it all. And you know what that means, folks. Don't miss this. It means that I don't have to go about in my life fretting over everything. The Bible says I can cast all my care upon him for he cares for me. If he made this universe and he sustains this universe and he's carrying it along according to his plan, guess what? He can look after me too and he can look after you. Amen. We don't need to lay awake and worry about everything going on in the world because Christ is able. He holds the key to life. He says in verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. God gives us life at two levels, physical and spiritual. He took the dust of the earth and He created Adam. But then what did He do with Adam? The Bible says He breathed into Adam life. He became a living soul. Not only just flesh and blood, but a living soul soul, spirit, and body. God made it all. And He gave Adam life, physical and spiritual. And He does the same for us today. You know, today some scientists want to open the door for cloning. They're thinking, you know what, we're going to be able to create too. But you know what, they have to take the building blocks of matter that God has already made. They can't create ex nihilo, but God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. And he gives life. And this life, verse 4 says, is in his son. I want to ask you, do you have that life? You see, if you've only been born once, you're going to die twice. But if you've been born twice, not only physically but also spiritually, if his life is in you, if you've been converted and born again, guess what? You're only going to die once and that will never hurt you. Do you have his life in you? Because, folks, the fact of the matter is, without Jesus Christ, you and I, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, are dead in our trespasses and sins. Everybody around you and me who does not know Christ, they don't know it, but they are walking around as dead, dead men and women. It's kind of like the farmer that was going to teach his little boy some of the facts of life, of living on the farm. And he took his little boy out one day in the yard and he took a chicken and he cut the chicken's head off and the chicken ran around flopping around and the little boy said, Look, Dad, the chicken's dead and he doesn't know it yet. That's how people are without Christ, without the life of Christ in them. They're dead and they don't know it. They're dead in trespasses and sins. Do you have Christ? 
Do you have his life? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, never die. In him is physical life and also spiritual life. And folks, that means that your life and my life is more, is intended to be more than just walking around and eating and talking and breathing. Real life consists in knowing Christ. You are created for a relationship with Him. He's also the light of the world. He says here in verses 4 and 5, The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A person without Jesus is not only spiritually dead, but they're also spiritually darkened. Listen to John 8, 12. It says again, Therefore Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. One of the most heartbreaking things in the world to see is people who are stumbling around in the dark and they're looking for light in all the wrong places. And some do this on purpose. Even though they know Jesus is the light, they run from Him. John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The light shines, and the world does not comprehend it. But verse 5 here also says the, light, the darkness does not overcome it. Aren't you glad of that? You see when the Bible says that Jesus is the light and in verse 9 it says that he enlightens every man. That means that every man, every man has been given a witness to the light. Paul talks about that in Romans 1. God has put a certain amount of light within us, our conscience. Romans 1 talks about the whole human race having enough light to understand that there is a God that they are accountable to. But Paul in Romans 1 goes on to say what men do. They suppress that light. They suppress that truth. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They don't come to the light because they want to make a God of their own fashion. So they don't have to repent or be in submission to anything, uh, anyone or anything around them. That's how the world is. The world loves the darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome the light. But notice what he goes on to say. Beautiful verses. Beautiful verses. Beginning in verse 11, he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Amen? Born of God. Jesus Christ is powerful. He is creator. He is life. He is light. Do you need life? Come to Christ. Do you need light? Come to Christ. He'll direct your path. 
Well, thirdly, John points out that Jesus Christ is personal. And now what I mean by personal is just what I've said before. John is communicating here that Jesus Christ, the Logos, isn't just some kind of impersonal force. He's personal. The second person of the Trinity. And look at verse 14, what it says about him. It says there in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came in flesh and blood. He came humbly. Born of a little peasant girl in a little village, a nowhere place, born in a manger. He could have come as a king, but he didn't. He came in real flesh and blood. He came humbly. The word tabernacled among us. Remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament as they moved around in the wilderness and set up the tabernacle? Folks, that's where the presence of God dwelt. And the Bible is pointing out that in the New Covenant, Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ is where we meet with God and we're reconciled to God. Why did he come in the flesh? To die for your sin. The just for the unjust. He came to be your sin substitute. But the book of Hebrews also points out he came in real flesh and blood because now as he is before the Father interceding for you, he's walked in your shoes. He's experienced everything you've experienced and yet without sin. And what that means as he's your advocate before the Father, he understands all the pains and the difficulties that you go through because he He's been there. And folks, that ought to mean something to us. We don't have a Savior who is cold and aloof. He wants to know us so badly. He wants a relationship with you. He came in flesh and blood so that He would be our sympathetic high priest. He's a personal God. He's not cold and distant. He came to reveal the Father. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The word here literally is Jesus Christ came to exegete the Father. Now what do we mean when we talk about exegesis or exposition? We take a passage of Scripture and we work down through it and we explain it. Verse 18 is saying that is what Jesus Christ has done. He has come to exegete the Father, to show us what the Father is like. Isn't that great? Men want to know what God is like. Is there a God out there? Is He merciful? Is He full of grace? Does He have any mercy? Does He have any grace? What's He like? Can I know Him? And God sent His Son, Jesus, that He would exegete the Father. That, to me, makes one of the passages in the upper room one of the saddest passages in the Bible because, remember, they said on one occasion, Jesus, show us the Father. And and Jesus said to them, Have I been so long with you that you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came to show us the Father. That the Father loves you. 
The Father loves you and wants to give you life and light. He made you. He's your rightful owner. And Jesus came to show us what he's like. He's not like these false gods that the Greeks and the Romans at the time worshipped who were petty. They took all of the vices of human nature, all of the ugly things of human nature, and those vices and all, their gods would have those same little petty jealousies and things. And Jesus came to show us that's not what God is like. He's not like what you've been told by the Greeks and the Romans. He's light and he's life. And he can change your life. He's merciful. He's a good God. And he wants you to know him. He sent his son that you might be reconciled to him. There was a heretic in in the early church by the name of Marcion. You may have read about Marcion. Polycarp was the disciple of John. Polycarp said when he met Marcion that Marcion was the firstborn of Satan. How would you like that name? He called Marcion the firstborn of Satan. Marcion rejected the God of the Old Testament. He tried to put a wedge between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament, Jesus, I love. He's a nice God. The God of the Old Testament kills and destroys and he's mean. I don't like that God. And he drew a distinction. And and the New Testament points out there's not a difference. Uh, Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And he came to show us what the Father is like. The Father is love. Yes, if you don't believe in Him and don't come to Him, there's nothing but a fearful judgment that awaits you. But God is a good God, and He wants to have peace with you. Amen? Jesus came to show us that. He came into your darkness and my darkness that you and I might be reconciled to a holy God. I want to tell you a story that I told you several years back and it just grabbed me again this week as I read it because I thought, wow. Now I realize in this story that's an analogy to the incarnate. You, you press any analogy too far and it begins breaking down at points. So don't, I don't want to press it too hard. Such a powerful analogy to the incarnation. In 1983... The First Presbyterian Church of Concord, California made a bold move. Such a bold move that many in the community didn't understand it. Many in the media did not understand it. Many in that church did not understand it. The pastor went before the elders. They all came together and they convinced the congregation that this was something they needed to do. And they did it. You see, there was a piece of property right next door to the church. And on that piece of property was a business. And that property came up for sale. And everybody in that community and everybody in that church had bemoaned the fact, rightly so, of what that business was. Uh, 
That business had brought darkness into the community. That business became available for purchase. But there was a catch. The new owner would have to allow that business to stay there until the original lease ran out. You say, well, what's the big deal? That business was the old galaxy theater that showed X-rated adult films. That meant if First Presbyterian purchased that property, they would have to let that business go on for much of that year until the lease ran out. And that meant that essentially First Presbyterian Church would be the owner of what was going on over there. But the pastor said the only way we can shut it down is to purchase the property. And when the lease runs out, they cleaned the building, they renovated it. That business that had brought darkness now brought the light of Jesus to the community. It became their community center where they reached out with evangelism and missions and benevolence ministries out into the community and told the community about Jesus. But you see, first of all, in order to redeem it and change it, they had to enter into that darkness. And then after that business shut down, that property became light. In a sense, in a powerful sense, that's an analogy of the incarnation. And Jesus Christ had to enter into your darkness to a sin-sick world. A world lost in perversion and darkness. And Jesus entered into our darkness and yet without sin so that he could bring redemption. And he could bring God's light. Amen. The incarnation, the Word made flesh. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning, please? I want to invite some of you to come to Christ today. Verse 17 again says that the law came through Moses. What does the law do? The law reveals that you are a sinner and you have offended a holy God and you are under God's judgment. If you're without Christ, that's your condition. And you can do nothing about your condition. You are doomed. But God sent His Son. And his son is full of grace and truth. John says here that from him we have received grace upon grace. Isn't that beautiful? Grace upon grace. Do you want judgment? Or do you want grace? Do you want what is fair? Or do you want mercy? Come to Christ. Experience God's grace. If you've already done that, I want you to know today that He is able to do everything that He's promised. 
He's with you. He's tabernacled among us. He understands your weaknesses. He can take all of your weaknesses, all of your trials, all of your heartaches, and He takes those before the Father and He intercedes for you. Folks, the Christmas story points out that you and I are not left on our own. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Christians, is there something troubling you this Christmas season? Cast all your care upon Him. He cares for you. Father, we thank You for the Christmas story. And what is primary in that story? It's not the secondary figures, but it's all about Jesus. God, thank You that Jesus entered into our darkness and lostness that he might exegete the Father and go to the cross and die for our sins that we might be reconciled to you and have life. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, I pray, I pray somebody here today would come to Christ that they would not live another day of their lives in darkness, but that they would come to Christ. And Lord, as believers, help us not to fret about the world. You made it. You sustain it. And you're carrying it along. Everything is right on schedule, accomplishing your will. And I pray that as believers, that would bring a great deal of peace to us. We don't need to lay awake at night and worry about things that lost people worry about. So Lord, we lay all of our burdens at your feet. In Christ's name we pray.